views expressed are not endorsed by the United States Department of Defense or its components. Welcome back to the Flyover Podcast as part of USAFA Aviation. Today is episode 13, and we are privileged to have Major Parker Hughie with us today. Major Hughie is a graduate of the Air Officer Commanding Master's Degree Program at the University of Colorado, Colorado Springs, with an educational focus in counseling and leadership development. As the commander of the United States Air Force Academy Cadet Squadron 39, the Jedi Knights, he is responsible for developing, mentoring, and leading future Air Force leaders. Major Hughie is a native of Fort Myers, Florida, and received his commission through the United States Air Force Academy in May 2011. Upon graduation, Major Hughie attended the Euro-NATO Joint Jet Pilot Training Program at Shepard Air Force Base, Texas, and received the MC-12W Liberty out of Beale Air Force Base, California, as his first operational assignment. During that time, he held a variety of operational positions related to the deployment and employment of the MC-12W aircraft and its personnel. After three years, Major Hughie cross-trained into the RC-135 Rivet Joint Community at Offutt Air Force Base, Nebraska, where he has held numerous administrative positions at the wing and squadron levels. Prior to his current position, Major Hughie served as the Chief Pilot and Assistant Director of Operations for the 343rd Reconnaissance Squadron at Offutt Air Force Base. Sir, welcome to the show. Thank you. Happy to be here. As, uh, it's a good day. I'm happy to uh, kind of come talk about what life in an ISR pilot's you know world kind of looks like and uh, what life after being a cadet looks like. So I was uh, here as a cadet in 2011, and, and here I'm back as an AOC, which is pretty wild to, to see both sides of, of what that experience kind of looks like. Yeah, I'm really interested to kind of talk a lot about the uh, MC-12 and RC-135, kind of specifically the MC-12, a platform that before this podcast or preparing for this podcast, I really had never heard about, um, don't really know much about still, but I guess we'll kind of just hop right into your, like, your flying career. So just like, Put the perspective to everyone. Um, what is the mission of the MC-12W? Sure. So mission of the MC-12 Whiskey is kind of how you'd be saying that. Uh, the best way to describe that is in juxtaposition kind of against what the RC-135 is. So MC-12 Whiskey is a tactical ISR plane. What does that mean? That means we're the people that are going out and looking for things, whatever kind of intelligence we can collect, um, which we'll talk about here in a second, but we're the ones going and doing it and talking and integrating with people on the ground. So one of our primary mission sets when we're not doing ISR is integrating that in with ground-based units, whether that's <clears throat> Afghan army, Green Berets, special forces, three-letter agencies, normal, just straight up uh, army units that are providing base defense for Bagram Air Base. So when I did my deployments, we flew out of Afghanistan, Bagram Air Base, which is in northern Afghanistan, did two tours there. Um, we integrated with all of them. So some of our missions in the MC-12 as a tactical ISR plane, go and do and support a unit using IMINT, so imagery intelligence, using SIGINT, signals intelligence, using comic communications intelligence. We'd support actual people doing actual things for a specific tactical job. Now, it's different than an RC-135, which is a strategic ISR plane, okay? And this will help explain both of them, is a strategic ISR plane is a big plane going somewhere, so we'd go circle off the coast of a country. You can guess which ones we might want to know, but literally everybody, and we are the ones that would pick up national level intelligence. So what does their air battle order look like? So talking about like, hey, what units, what airframes, what naval units, like where are those at? All right, can we pick up information on them? We're also there to look at what their <clears throat> what their defensive postures look like. So hey, do they have air defense? Do they have surface to air? Do they have air to air? Like what is going on? We're not doing that because we're doing an actual operation at that location. We're doing it because we want to know. And if we ever did have to do an operation there, 
this is the information that enables that air war to go on with a near peer kind of situation. So we did use the RJ in kind of tactical, some tactical level situations in Iraq, and we might get there and we can talk about some deployments I did with that. Um, but primarily it's a strategic national level intelligence asset. So tactical supporting guy doing the job on the ground, kicking indoors, you know, trying to go kill a bad guy, trying to go find out what some terrorist cell looks like. Strategic ISR, hey, what does a nation do? What is China, Russia, England, France, the Bogota, like anybody, anybody in the world, what is that nation kind of doing? Yeah, so on the topic of the, like the tactical level, so yeah. you talk about like, you know, helping the people on the ground, mm -hmm. but specifically if you can go into it, like what does that actually look like? Sweet. So what does that look like? That means that you, the JTAC, so a Joint Tactical Air Commander or Controller, they might be somebody who is with embedded in a unit, say an army unit, and they're going and doing village clearing, looking for weapons. MC-12 might be overhead, and with our imagery intelligence, we can say, hey, this is where an IED is. Hey, we see some people who are carrying guns who are uh, looking to like kind of amping themselves up to come ambush you. Hey, you've just got fired at. This is where the fire's coming from. Hey, this is where your helpful units are. I've had missions where we've had literally had a convoy, so we'll provide convoy overwatch. Convoy's going along and a car gets stuck or turns on the wrong place. And we're the ones that can be overhead saying, hey, you're completely safe. There's no one in the local area. Even though it's middle of the dark, you know, middle of the night, completely pitch dark, you have no essay on what's going on. We're the ones overhead providing you the safety and the kind of uh, <clears throat> reassurance that you're okay and that there's not you're not about to drive into an IED. Hey, yes, I know you're lost. The convoy's behind you. So take, you know, turn around, take the first left, second right, keep going straight over the hill. That's where the convoy's at. So we're providing whatever we need to to provide and protect the people above us, um, whether that's anything. Sometimes if it's really quiet, we don't need to do anything, and we're just there. We're the ever-present eye in the sky to kind of help people. What altitudes do you guys normally fly at? Good question. Uh, in Iraq, it depends really on the location. So in Iraq, fairly close to sea level, we'd be flying anywhere from 500 feet, 1,000 feet, up to however high we need to go. Uh, Afghanistan, slightly different. Instead of having 14ers all around Bagram Air Base, you've got 18,000-foot mountains. And so you can imagine when we're doing and flying missions, I've done missions where we've circled at about a half, 60 degrees of bank, half-mile radius uh, orbit, trying to follow a car to keep uh, <clears throat> identification. So we verified this car has a specific person in it. We're following to see where they go. We've done it below mountaintop, but you don't, still don't want to run into a mountain. So wherever you need to go, we really uh, top out. So our service ceiling, you know, can't get into anything too specific, but we start getting into the high twos, low threes. That's probably, you know, 30,000 feet kind of stuff. That's where we really start hitting our service ceiling limit, but we can go higher. We can go lower. We employ the aircraft as necessary to get, collect the intelligence that we need to, to support America and, and Americans on the ground. Sounds like the mission of the MC-12 Whiskey is pretty pretty important to the mm -hmm. impact. Would you be able to speak a little bit on the impact of that mission in the Middle East? Absolutely. When, and I, we were talking earlier, I said I, I, during the, the war in Afghanistan, the war in Iraq, I don't think there was a aircraft that had more impact to the war effort than the MC-12 did. And the reason I say that is we were constantly getting tasked with more, more, more. When we were flying out of Afghanistan, we flew out of two locations, Kandahar Air Base in southern Afghanistan, Bagram Air Base in northern Afghanistan. We had around 24 lines a day going out of Kandahar, and we had th around 36 lines a day flying out of Bagram. 24-hour surveillance all day. We'd have five or six aircraft going at all times. The reason for that is because we offered 
a integral key piece of tying the entire war effort together. So when we talk about uh, during those times of like, hey, this is a terror cell leader, or this is the Al Qaeda leader, or this is the Taliban, or just a local national like leader that we're trying to support, providing intelligence, knowing what their situation is, who they talk to, what network and what influence they have all around us. That's things that we need every day, right? And so, and whenever we identified, hey, this is a person that needs to die. So to be blunt about it, it was probably at MC12 that was involved with that. Sometimes we do pattern of life missions. That's called where we're almost doing something like a UAV where you just sit there and circle, figure out who goes into a compound, who comes out of a compound. What's the the life, what's the day-to-day cycle? Like, hey, people are here, people are not here because we need to know those things if we ever do a strike. I've had missions where we would follow a person for 24 hours a day for a month and every day they'd say, hey, if this person goes, leaves in this type car and takes a left, you follow them. If they take a right, you call it in and it's gonna be the, the go for a strike. And we follow them every day and we know who they're talking to, who all their associates are. And we start following those people and who their associates are. And that goes as far as we need it to go. The one day he takes a right, because when they take a right, that's when they're going to launch a lot, you know, a rocket at Bagram Air Base. Do they usually hurt somebody? No, but they can. That's when they, when they took that right, maybe that was when they're going to drop an IED, you know, somewhere and bury it for, to hit a convoy. So they go right, go time. That's, we use the, the stuff on the MC-12 to verify it's them, verify there's no one there that doesn't need to die. And if they go right and we've got the the go of like, yep, it's just that person in the car. They're going to do something that's hurting Americans. We're there to find, fix, finish. We find them. We made sure it was just them. And then we're the ones that lays in the the weapon to put a warhead on a forehead and make sure that that threat goes away. Yeah. So when we talk <clears> about <throat> it being such a important ISR platform, what's the um, like without re- aerial refueling, how long can it circle? It's a good question. So for an MC-12 Whiskey, that was a Beechcraft 350 extended range. And so our average timeline was about uh, five hours. So two engines, a little bit more gas than what a U-28 would have, <clears throat> which excuse me, which had uh, a little bit less legs uh, and couldn't go quite as high just because of, like I said, two engines and bigger gas tanks. But yeah, when we are flying appropriately, flying at altitudes uh, that allow us to have some fuel efficiency. Averaged about five hours, the longest mission I ever did because we did a full mission, then came back and had a tick. So it's a troops in contact right outside a base. There was an operation going on, a unit of army rangers got into a firefight. And so we essentially circled right off the end of the runway, supporting them, trying to say like, hey, fire's here, kicking that door, you know, this is the person that injured, being available if we need to call in a medevac nine line. So that's all things we can do. and supporting all the other airframes that are supporting that tick kind of going on. Uh, we did, a, I think the longest they ever flew was about a 7.3. So seven hours and almost almost seven and a half hours. And so is that just like a, when you have to go, you know, not surveil mm-hmm. this specific person is just there as another MC-12 whiskey who comes in and takes over? Yep, warm handoff is what we call it. And so we had every single, you know, early progenitor of uh, what Teams is. So before Teams was the thing, uh, before we had something called AOL chat, like, you know, chat kind of devices. And we had something called Pigeon or Merck is what it's now called. And that's what we had connecting all the different MC-12s. And so we could sit there and say like, hey, we're sure this is the person that's here. We're sure about these are the people in the compounds. This is what we've seen. Warm handoff with an MC-12, this, the one that's following on to continue that 24-hour surveillance. 
and it's very planned. When you have things that are troops in contact, we don't have somebody fragged against to come out and fly, right? There might all the other crews might be somewhere else or doing other missions, or there might not be get there might be somebody just getting spun up. Or it might be so volatile that we don't want to have that handoff happen in the middle of somebody getting shot at. And so yeah, the for a tick kind of situation, that's where you absolutely stay as long as you need to go. So when we left at seven hours and three minutes, you know, seven point three, that was a hey, we are getting to like bingo fuel, you know, as in like we don't want to, I can't even employ my aircraft. I can't turn as aggressively as I want or go, you know, two knows high or else my could fuel, you know, starve the engines in the aircraft. And so that starts getting to a situation of weighing, hey, can I get somebody here to support? Can I stay here as long as necessary? And then, you know, in that situation of starting to calm down, we are in a kind of a lull in the action. And so we were able to get somebody on to kind of take our place and then us go land. Especially <clears throat> in a deployment sense, like you were talking about here, it sounds like a pretty intensive day-to-day process. Would you be able to speak a little bit more on the day-to-day in flying the MC-12 Whiskey in both training and deployment? Sure. Uh, so the easier one to say training, uh, when we were stateside, for the lead up is a normal AF, you know, training environment of you fly, debrief, learn, go fly again. So that was a fairly rigorous situation where you don't want to fail and fail out of your training or something like that. But uh, once you got through the actual formal training schoolhouse and are a, a qualified MC-12 pilot, it was a fairly laid back schedule. You'd fly when you needed to to maintain currency. Um, lieutenants would sometimes be given the keys to a slick. So one that doesn't have any mission uh, equipment on it, just a Beechcraft 350. They'd say, hey, go fly, bring it back in three hours. And so two lieutenants, you know, would get in and we'd go fly and we'd go fly VFR approaches into, so visual flight rules, but VFR flight you know, approaches into Tahoe. Or it'd be like, man, I haven't done a back course localizer in a couple of years. Let's uh, want to go try that one at some random little podunk field in Northern California. They're like, sure, let's go figure it out. And so we'd go do that. We've we've flown VFR in Big Sur, and I've flown over you know a thousand foot over the Golden Gate Bridge or two thousand feet over it, and gone and circled around Alcatraz, and you know done those kind of fun things. So learning and really employing the aircraft in a way that you can like, hey, go learn and go practice and go do things in a way that we don't have an instructor just kind of over your shoulder, you know, evaluating everything you do. So training environment, very nice. Flying environment, enough to stay qualified. The reason for that is because when you go deploy in the MC-12, it was fairly aggressive. So we, I have done 30 missions every, you know, a mission a day for 30 days in a row where we're pushing the maximum limit of flight hours. That's how you can get 1,200 hours of flight time in six months, you know, kind of situation in a seven-month deployment because you're flying and you're flying and you're flying and you're flying and you're flying, 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 flying. Groundhog day. Um for so yeah what does the normal day look like in an mc12 you know to kind of fall into that question uh we'd show up every day bagram air base there's not a ton going on this is back before the days of internet everywhere and so you really didn't have a ton of internet connectivity we had a place to watch movies you had places to call home but a lot of us really spent a lot of our time in squadron right we found ways to entertain ourselves because that's where all our friends are and we'd spend 10 12 hours a day at work just because that's where the people are you wake up work out eat go to work hang out most likely you'd fly that day unless you were doing an operation so we oftentimes got fragged against a scheduled operation hey the you know afghan forces or cia or uh somebody's going somewhere and doing something like this is an operation that you have to kind of be on your a game for this is the timeline this is the employment this is what they need you to do right so look here at this time look there at this time call up different tactical things going on for those days, we'd come in and probably brief a couple hours before the flight. But for most of the other ones, POL, pattern of life, you really could brief it up. And you're like, oh, hey, we're flying north to Mazi Sharif. Like, can do that in my sleep. And did that 15 times in a row. So kind of got it. And so we do a quick brief. 
Uh, the fastest, if you needed to get off the ground from start of ground ops to takeoff is about 20, 30 minutes. So when you've got a crew that's been flying together for you know, six months, every day kind of situation, you can get pretty good at knowing who's doing what, when. Um, the hard part is making sure you don't get into, fall into complacency, which is a completely different discussion. But when everyone's professional knows what they're doing, been there a long time, you can get geared up and out the door very, very quickly. Go fly your five hours. Sometimes that's, you know, for, I'd say 50% of the time, not much going on, right? You're just verifying what's there, verifying that the person's doing what you're expecting them to do because there's no time to strike. Rest of the time, it starts getting more aggressive. Hey, something might happen or hey, something literally is going to happen this time. And that's where it can get very, very hectic very, very quickly. And that's where having a four-person crew, so an MC-12 four-person crew, pilot, co-pilot, sensor operator, TISO, tactical sensor operator, um, that's where that crew can, on the, the go days, can be incredibly wildly employed and you're just trying to hold on and support everybody as necessary. So uh, you talked a lot about, you know, the MC-12 whiskey's impact in the Middle East, mm -hmm. but um, I'm not sure how far you can go into it, but how has it impacted, if at all, in other, like in Africa, mm -hmm. in the Africa um, scene? Yeah. It, has it been there or like what? Can you speak to that? So while I was there from 20, end of 2012 through 2015, the primary war effort was in Afghanistan, right? We had also done prior to my time being there in Iraq and the need for our capabilities was so intense that every single aircraft that wasn't being used to train up the next round of pilots or operators was there supporting. We would triple turn every plane every day kind of situation. I mean, like I said, we had over 60 lines a day flying in Afghanistan, right? So that's that takes a wear on the force. And so we really didn't have much use elsewhere. Now, since I've been gone and Afghanistan has calmed down, where does the Air National Guard fly? Where do non-governmental agency flies? Where does the Army fly the MC-12s? That's where the MC-12s have mostly gone to. Everywhere. <clears throat> and they're still doing the same kind of thing. I can't speak to them specifically kind of in this venue, um, but they're still doing the same thing. So it is a asset that is primarily and I don't want to say uniquely, but pretty uniquely uh, situated and suited to tactical ISR being there, being available long vol times if you need them, uh, and then able to react to last minute situations. And a <clears throat> a UAV with its downlink and uplink and everything else isn't able to communicate to other aircraft the same way we can. Isn't able to to react to developing evolving situations the same way we can they can't uh, surge their operations as necessary we had four people on an aircraft and there's plenty of times where we had to use every single one of those people both in their primary job and then jobs outside of that primary job to support the people on the ground um, when we so quick story we had a one of the coolest missions i did southern afghanistan uh almost all the way to kandahar there's a river we were operating and doing a mission there supporting a an operation a pre-planned operation at night we had a raz so raz restricted operating zone is essentially like a moa which is a training area right so it just says it's published and says hey everyone stay out of this area you know this whatever this geographical location is because things are going down people are shooting and, and doing maneuvers there so we're in a raz we're controlling it the mc12 could do a cool thing called be the 
uh, brief stack marking sensor. So we controlled other aircraft in that ROS. Okay. So when a fighter was there and it needed to go refuel, we were the ones that cleared them out of the ROS and cleared them to go yo-yo. That's the terminology for getting refueling. Or if an AC-130 needed to go do a gun to target line or something, we're the ones that clear them to do that. And we'd read all that information back and coordinate with whoever was on the ground, namely the JTAC or uh, close combat air controller, kind of see the personnel. We're the ones that were like talking with them, like, Hey, this is, the strike that needs to happen. We're the ones relaying that to the other aircraft. We're also the ones assigning the sensor requirements. So, hey, AC-130, you look at this building, your primary call out anything that happens there. Hey, B-1, that's not doing anything, like, because you don't, we don't need your GBUs or anything like that. Like, hey, you're looking at this place. Be ready to go if we need you. Hey, helico- helicopters that are coming in, like, this is how you're going to do that. We're the ones controlling all that. So we're, we're there working, uh, supporting a mission on one side of, of a river, and it's busy, right? Pilot, I'm kind of controlling everything as the mission commander. Co-pilot is uh, helping back me up, making sure the aircraft's not falling out of the sky, putting us in place. Like, hey, I need to be looking at this building at this time from this direction. Or, hey, we need to get out of the way of a, a missile strike that's coming, whatever the case is. Imagery operator, he was working with stuff, Tizzo doing their thing. We, at that time, heard on the radios another operation going on the other side that was ad hoc, meaning wasn't pre-planned. It's just something's going down, right? Going on the other side of the river and they were in complete chaos, right? Like people were talking, no one could get anybody on the radio. We took over that Roz and did the exact same thing for them, right? So we've got eight aircraft in our Roz. We've got another five or six aircraft in that other different Roz, different ground personnel we're talking to. A UAV cannot sit there and control all of that because it is one person. We had four people who had been doing this for six months. And so I took one side, sensor operator, the most experienced dude, took the other side, co-pilot helped with both and was talking to aircraft. So they took part of the, the requirements of what we needed. I was talking to ground, sensor stopping to ground. The co-pilot was talking to all the planes and the TISO continued doing the TISO things and keeping it. We had Merc too. So we're talking to everybody else in the entire freaking operation all over Afghanistan. They're the ones being like a scribe of saying everybody else, hey, here's what's going on. That was only possible because we had people on board that could do that. UAV can't do that, right? Even a fighter who as, as skilled and, and passionate as they are, you you have, there's only so much one person can do. And so the MC-12 was uniquely situated because we had that number of people that we could surge to cover as much as was necessary for that kind of situation. And that mission ended up being a success. Both sides, we had 10, 15 EKIA kind of per side and it did, you know, no bad guy, all the bad guys died, or at least the group, some bad guys died and no good guys died successful mission we can come back exhausted because <laughs> that was a, a freaking night kind of situation but we stayed on for our six six and a half hours and then came back very cool so you seem to be very passionate about the mc12 whiskey it seems like a very awesome airframe so um i just kind of wanted to ask why did you transfer over to the rc-135 before we before we get to that i'm gonna, oh. I'm gonna ask a couple follow-up questions i okay. guess on the mc12 before we go to the rc-135 so you talked a little bit about um, working with three-letter agencies. Mm-hmm. So, like, again, probably can't talk a lot about it, but what's it like working with them, and what does it look like? It looks, for the most part, like working with professionals. So when they, they know what they're doing, and they've got a very certain way of doing it because they're very good at doing it that way, you get the, the mission requirements. You get We get this packet of, like, hey, here's the con-op of what we're going to do. And you know that, hey, if we ever want to work with these people again and do cool stuff and, like, impact mission, right, not just sit around, circle a drone in the sky and be like, what did I do today? I don't know. 
If you want to impact the mission, you want to work with them, you better be a professional too. Because they have no time and they have no patience for people who are not going to do their job and be professionals. And so that was one of the good things. Uh, MC12, I was fairly experienced, did a decent job, got trained up well. And so I always worked nights in Afghanistan. Our technology gave us the advantage at night, right? We can see in the dark. Bad guys can't. So that was when all the operations happened. Okay. Now, when the good guys attack or the bad guys attack good guys during the day, sweet, we can support that too. But the night was when all the pre-planned missions happened. And that's when the things like village clearings, uh, interdictions, captures, strikes, that's when that stuff happened, when it was pre-planned. And so, yeah, uh, working with three-letter agency, working with special forces, working with uh, very specific units, like that's when you know you had to have your A game on. And that's when we put the, like, my crews, we'd go and, and be the more experienced guys would go kind of take care of those situations because we know we have to get it right because people could die, right? It's one thing to say we're taking an entire battalion of troops and we're just sweeping someplace. You know, there's thousands of people there or hundreds of people there, whatever. It's another thing when it's like a very small tactical unit going in to do a very specific job that has to get done right. And so get it right. Good to go? Yeah, good to go. Um, Just come back to the question. So the RC-135, you talked a little bit earlier Mm -hmm. about the difference between tactical ISR and more strategic ISR. Could Mm -hmm. you kind of dive into that a little bit more and why you transferred? Sure. Uh, Why transferred is a simpler situation. By simple, it's not... Well, maybe it's easier to explain, not simple. Uh, Essentially what happened, ACC said, this is a capability that we don't envision being useful in a near peer situation agree with that disagree with that separate conversation which is interesting but not really what you're asking so acc saw it and got rid of the program because they said hey if we're ever going to war with china or russia a plane that has no weapons on it that has limited you know speed capabilities probably not going to be very helpful it's hard you can't really fly an mc-12 across the pacific like you can a b1 or b2 or something like that um, can't really get some it onto station like a, a fighter could to go, you know, like a wild weasel to go blow up an air, a surface air missile location, right? So instead, this is much more of a coin, you know, counterinsurgency kind of situation, which it's very, very good at what it did, just maybe not to that future. And so they made the hard choice. If you're thinking about that 2013, 14, 15, we're talking about budget restrictions, talking about sequestrations, we're talking about voluntary separation packages. The entire Air Force was downsizing, and it was unfortunately the one that got the cut. Now, we talked about how important it was. CENTCOM, the ones who were running the war, they couldn't get enough of it. They wanted more. They wanted us to double in size, right? And so there was this weird interplay between ACC and CENTCOM of just like, do we get rid of it? When do we get rid of it? How do we get rid of it? So ACC eventually said, hey, we're going to get rid of this unit. It's not that AC. Ah, it's I was going to say like that. It's going to go in a little bit. Cool. Just want to make sure I wasn't like hitting something. All right. Uh, but ACC said, hey, we're, we want to get rid of this because it's costing us a tanker unit, right? It's like one squadron. Yes, I'm running three squadrons with the highest uh, success rate of, of takeoffs. We had a 98% success rate on taking off. Yes, it's still costing us a tanker unit or a fighter squadron, right? And so they said, hey, in a year period, that's what we're more concerned about. So we're going to get rid of you and try to transition to those UAVs, right? UAVs, like we've talked about, really not suited to doing the flexible tactical ISR plane. They're very good at just like looking at one thing or like fly and go strike that one thing. Like they're good at that and do it for super long periods of time. So I'm not taking anything away from UAVs. It's just a different tactical mission set. But... They're trying to move towards that. They say, hey, that's the future. We can get rid of it now. So they got divested themselves. They essentially kicked out 
90% of the pilots over the, about a two, one and a half to two year span and transitioned the airframes themselves to other agencies. So they went to the guard, they went to the army, they went to non-governmental agencies because like us, when we were in Afghanistan, not only did they have 36 lines flying out of Bagram, I was number one of 14 in line before a Beechcraft 350s. So other agencies, other NGOs doing the exact same thing, not as well because they are under different title, you know, title this, title that. So they don't have the same rules and restrictions or abilities, capabilities that the military can do in those kind of spaces, but it was needed. And so we divested them to the, all these other agencies to continue that IS tactical ISR, not the same exact way, not the same integration, but the I, you know, the the being able to do pattern of life, being able to do the the intelligence portion of that mission set. So it went away, and I had an option of saying like, well, now what? Thankfully, the reason I chose so that's the strategic reason why I picked the RJ. Uh, the tactical reason I picked the RJ is we had every kind of pilot you can imagine, and I flew with all of them in the MC12. So we had. 22 pilots, we had 16 pilots, we had C-17 pilots, we had C-5 pilots, we had U-28 pilots, AC-130, C-130, like literally the entire spectrum of people because we needed just pilots and bodies. And so every unit was sending people to the MC-12s. And I talked with all of them and I had a choice. And I said, well, hey, who wants to go back to their, their, their airframes? And some people did and some people didn't. And I was just like, who do I like hanging out with? Who are good people, like my kind of people? And the, I, there was two airframes that... I had both of those people I enjoyed hanging out with my kind of people and people that wanted to go back to the airframes, right? That weren't burnt out. It was the RJ and the C5. And my best friend from that went RJ. And I was like, hey, I got no other reason. I don't know what else to do. So let's go RJ. Sounds like a cool mission set. Sounds like you want to go back there because you enjoy it and find it fulfilling. And if I had to spend, you know, another 10 years in the Air Force with somebody, I'd rather spend it with you than some of these other people that just might not be my kind of people. <laughs> so that's why I went to the RJ. Now, strategic versus ISR. So yeah, we went from this, hey, I am overhead, hundred, uh, you know, 1,000 foot above a JTAC who's getting shot at saying like, hey, I need you to, to call in, a, in an airstrike from an a, from a, you know, A-10 to blow up this guy that's like over the other rock, like right over there. Like, please help me. That is tactical. That is saving somebody's life on the ground. Strategic, less that, more talking about battle spaces. And so when we were flying in the RJ, I have flown, done deployments out of England, out of Crete, Greece, out of Japan, out of Alaska, out of Puerto Rico. Like we, if you can imagine who we were flying against in those different locations, but we were trying to update strategic, the grand strategy, you know, the American picture of what's going on in those locations. So we've done everything from counter drug, what kind of drug operations are going on so we can use the sensor suite that's on board the RJ to kind of understand that better. We pick up signals in the electromagnetic spectrum, and that is all I can say. But use that to kind of identify what's going on and kind of gather intelligence. We've also flown out of Japan. You can imagine who and where we're flying out of Japan. We would go there and say, like, hey, what capabilities do they have there? What ground capabilities? What air capabilities? Because uh, we would get intercepted. Okay, that's not even a bad thing. What can we find out with our with our sensor suite? So that's a strategic because I'm not helping a guy on the ground talking to that person on the radio. And by we would absolutely know who we're talking to. I know that JTAC, you know, like this call sign, I know that guy. I've literally met him at the hospital when I was helping, you know, take care of his guys because I'd volunteer at the ICW. So it's pre-med guy. So I'd help there too. But you'd get to know them, right? That's a tactical ISR platform. Strategic, I have my crew. We're doing things, we're sending a message, you know, because America can say, hey, I'm going to put an RJ off your coast, and there's nothing you can do about it. It is completely unarmed, so you can't sit there and say, like, hey, self-defense, I shot it down. 
It's completely unarmed aircraft, and it's going to be off your coast every day for however long I want it to be, and there's nothing you can do about it. Country, right? That's a, that's a grand strategy, strategic ISR platform. So it sounds like the RC-135 is a pretty advanced platform. Um, do any other um, foreign adversaries or competitors have anything even close to the RC-135 or what its capabilities are? I am sure everyone would like to. You would have to ask other people in other locations than this to say what capabilities other countries have. Okay. Um, so I, get, I think you you might have mentioned it um, briefly, how the, I th- believe it was the RC-135 was used at some point in the Middle East. Mm-hmm. Um, so like, what did that look like? So what that looks like, uh, flying out of Qatar, as we can say that now, but Bagram Air, uh, not Bagram, uh, that's Al-Yadid Air Base. Uh, we'd fly about two hours to get into country into Iraq. Uh, and we would provide the same services. So that strategic ISR, uh, not so much to send a message because Iraq had us there, but you can think about geopolitical what was going on in countries around it, Syria, other countries, like that might be a, a message. I don't know. We'll see. But we provide whatever our services were uh, there. What does that look like? Sometimes that looks like circling and identifying what airborne assets are in other countries, Right. So Syria also had a Russian influence there at that time. Maybe that was something we were looking at. I don't know. Um, We would also be looking at that time. So I was in the midst of ISIS, ISIL, that kind of situation. And so we were also probably trying to pick up electromagnetic spectrum signals. Electromagnetic, you know, that's whatever that could be. It could be because the electromagnetic spectrum is a very large spectrum. But trying to pick up what we could find out from that and to help identify. Uh, It was also useful. So one of the coolest missions we did is uh, I was part of a crew that was support for the strike on a oil field in Iraq that provided about 40% of ISIL's funding in Iraq. So we're there part of the strike. And so what we did as as an example, we were there, bad weather, but we're an RJ, so we can air our fuel, so we can stay on board, on station as long as we need, you know. And if it's uh, America's in danger, then we're going to stay as long, even longer than that. Uh, then we can't. Uh, but anyway, so we were there. We watched. Uh, I think it was uh, the first strike package of F-15s go in, and they hit it, and nothing happened. And then we watched a B-1 go in and hit it, and nothing. Actually, it was it was two F-22s, then an F-15, two F-15s, and then or two F-B-1, and then the F-15s were last uh, F-15E models. When that lat though, when the F-15 emails went in, I kid you not, we couldn't see it because we were about two, you know, hundreds of miles away. But I would say through the clouds, 180 degrees of the sky lit up from hundreds of miles away. It's an oil field, big oil field, and we blew it up. That that thing just freaking lit up the sky. I'll never forget it. it. Looked like daytime for about a minute in that in like that direction. Um, and then we were on station to be able to say like, hey do we see any sort of activity going on there, right, afterwards? Did we actually blow it up? Did we not blow it up? Was it a partial? Was it not? At that point, you're like, I think something close to, like, a nuclear bomb went off there, so I'm pretty sure it's blown up. But we were there to make sure, that, hey, what's actually going on? Awesome. So, yeah. So I guess kind of transitioning a little bit to the future of the Air Force, where the Air Force is going. So you kind of answered um, one of my first questions um, earlier, but – um, so you kind of talked about why the, um, the MC-12 whiskeys got transferred to the Air National Guard and kind of got divested. Mm-hmm. Um, but originally, why were there so few MC-12 whiskeys when it sounds like they were just in such high demand? The reason there wasn't any of them is because we bought the first MC-12 whiskey 
off of eBay. In fact, I think we bought the entire first block of 12 of them off of eBay. So it was just a guy or gals, CEOs, personal little aircraft, Beechcraft 350, that were like, that looks useful. Let's buy it, strip it, put in all of our technology, and go use it. And so think about when we first started into Afghanistan, we did not had not done this coin situation. So we didn't know what we needed. We are good at Desert Storm, hitting centers of gravity, A-10s going and blowing up, uh, you know, a, a convoy of uh, Iranian National Guard or Iranian Royal Guard or whatever they're called. Um, like, we're good at that. But what does COIN look like? What does ISR look like? What is, you know, like, we don't know. And so as we got there, we started developing an idea of what COIN looked like, how, what did air operations look like? And so we had to stand up a platform from nothing to something, okay? And this is before UAVs were as diversified as they are now. We only had really manned assets. And so it was actually incredibly, I mean, you could do a case study. It was incredible how quickly we stood up this operation. Not only went from a literal plane carrying CEOs to a plane that is now on station supporting people on the ground with technologies geared into all the top secret infrastructure of our, our network, the U.S. network. Like that, it was incredible how fast that happened. And then to stand it up to the point where we could have that many missions going on simultaneously was actually incredible. We were, it was, it was a dead sprint from the start to the finish, sprinting to stand it up and then sprinting to stand it down. Um, so I would not say it was that we didn't have too few. It was more of that we didn't have the capability because we didn't know we even needed the capability because we're not, this is the first time, or at least, you know, maybe you could talk about it in being like Vietnam or something like that, but we didn't, MC-12 wasn't around then, right? That was still kind of this Viet Cong conflict. And so this was a new war, new situation where ISR integration is becoming critical, which we are seeing continued into how the F-35 was developed, how the a, you know the AWACS and JSARs kind of become these communication C2 hubs, right? It was a new way of war, and so we were standing up that tactical mission piece that we had kind of never really identified as being important. That was why the MC-12 kind of got generated so quickly. And now as we start moving into UAVs being more appropriate and more capable, we have better data link, we have better training, we have better capabilities, we have more sensor suites that we can put on these these UAVs in more diversified ways. Hey, now we can start having them a little bit take over that mission set. Okay, so it sounds like uh, partially UAVs have advanced to a point where the MC-12 whiskey is slightly possibly not needed as much as it used to be sure okay they're trying they're trying i mean okay. they're trying i i think it's uh it's something that we are not at the final product for uavs we are still it's still a nascent growing field and so we i would still say and i think you 28 pilots who have done a lot of the same jobs we have would still say that uavs aren't there to be able to do it but they're getting better and it is the future. And we can't, if we are always playing reactionary to events, we'll never be able to get ahead of it. And so when you're, when the top brass, the Air Force was able to look at the situation and say like, hey, we have to cut something. Do we cut the A-10? Do we cut the U-2? Do we cut this? Do we cut that? I mean, it was an easier choice to say, let's cut the MC-12 because A, it didn't have the constituency base that an A-10. You talk to like the Senate about A-10 and they're like, what? Like we kind of, you know, like Congress is up in arms about trying to get divest the A-10 or the E-2, like, right? So it was an easy first step to say like, hey, we've got something that is growing into this capability. We see ourselves moving out of the coin business and trying to retool ourselves into being a near peer air conflict situation, which an MC-12 wouldn't be really well suited for. 
And so how do we start moving towards that? And so that, that is why they divested it. So working off that question, um, it seems as if, so we have a consensus that the UAVs aren't quite there. If we were to get into a near-peer adversary conflict, what airframes do you think would kind of pick up the slack of what the MC-12 used to do? Absolutely. So you can see that actually was even happening in Afghanistan, and we kind of talked about it briefly, but we are getting so much better at putting, we call them pods or sensor suites, onto every other aircraft. ISR is no longer a... a designation like a fighter is right there's nothing you know a fighter or a bomber or transport right everything can do it so i have seen b1s do isr i've seen f15s f16s do isr i've seen uavs do it i've seen ac-130s i've seen non-governmental agency stuff like literally ec1 everything can do isr now okay and so the point if we get into a near peer ass you know situation uh, i don't think and once again biased opinion all an opinion. I am by no means speaking to the Air Force, so please don't put me on the side and say, like, this is what he said. But opinion-wise, UAVs, if it gets shot down, bad day, no pilot dies. Okay, that's pretty nice. We've got these, like, high-altitude, kind of long-duration kind of UAVs, which are helpful. We've got smaller tactical ones, which are super helpful, and we can launch out of very austere, you know, situations that we couldn't just put a crew and the support for an UAV, you know, that a UAV needs what, a, what an MC-12 needs or what a RJ needs, like much, much more support than what maybe a hand-thrown UAV or something could be. Anyways, between that and other more organic or other airborne assets that are manned that can be ad hoc chopped to doing ISR duties, that's how we're going to be able to do it. RJs are super helpful. In a near-peer ass, in a near-peer war, the RJ goes in coin, kind of a person filling a role. Square peg, round hole. Air war asset, air war, like with an ear peer, RJ comes into its own. And it is by far a incredibly significant part of that battlefield because we're the ones that are tying together all the intelligence, all the information that's coming from all of our UAVs, all of our different uh, fighters from the AWACS, JSS. We're tying that all together into a, a battle picture that people we can then broadcast to everyone else and then say like, hey, this is what we're doing. Okay. It's also the ones that can say like, hey, the danger's here, the danger's there. We know from our sensor suite, like this is what that unknown aircraft is. This is what this maybe is. This is what this danger is. Like we can start tying that all together into a battle uh, order, you know, uh, and, and start managing that situation. Okay. That's the strategic aspect as we start getting to those wars. And so between the literal different intelligence collections, anyone can do it. We've put those on a lot of different places, but the RJ is really important in that situation because it ties it all together and has some, we call them have a, so high value airborne assets. Like we can, we have 26 people on an RJ that can then just like an MC 12 start surging our operations to cover more information than maybe what a normal mission could be that, you know, a fighter can't do, a one person, one, even a four ship can't do, right? We can tie that all together. We have dozens of radios that we can talk to different people in different assets in different places. And we have the view to be able to be hundreds of miles away and be able to still impact the battle space and say like, hey, this is what you need to know. We need to know it at the right moment to the right people. So kind of going off that, talking near peer and the um, RC-135's role in that, you talked a little bit earlier about, you know, being able to just park that thing mm-hmm. off the coast of whatever nation and the, the country can't do anything about it because it's doesn't have any weapons on it. It's not a threat. Um, but if it's actually in a wartime environment, mm-hmm. obviously that might change things. Um, so so how does the RC-135 m- maintain its relevancy 
in a wartime environment, being that it's a very big object in the sky that the enemy probably sees. Our motto is alone and unafraid. We are just this, the same things that keep us safe when there's no one there is the same stuff that keeps us safe when we are there. So we've got sensor suites on board that can give us such good SA, situational awareness of the battle space, that we can keep ourselves safe. We also have SA of like where the good guys are, where the bad guys are. We have tactics in our tactic shop of like how to handle those different situations. But it ultimately does come down to if you're an, an RJ pilot, an ISR pilot, you're like, I think this is important enough that I will put myself in a position where all I can do is like run away safe quickly or take it. And that is absolutely something that might happen. Um, we had a, well, yeah. So there are missions and there are acceptable levels of risk where we go out saying like, hey, I don't have the defenses necessary other than what's on my aircraft, my, my global SA, anything other than that to protect me. And even if I have that, I, it might be important enough that I still stay. Because if we're in a situation where that's bad enough and that's what's required of us, we're, all, we're willing to give that sacrifice because it's going to be worthwhile in prosecuting the war and protecting other people. So it's something everyone has to look forward to. But it absolutely has enough capabilities to keep itself safe as long as we're smart about it. Does it have any countermeasures? We have our wits. Awesome. That's good. So it sounds like there's a pretty definitive role that the RC-135 would have in a future conflict. Mm -hmm. Speaking on a bit of a broader term, what it does the future of the RC-135 look like? Are we expanding its capabilities? Are we just going to keep it where it is? Or how does that look? It's constantly uh, expanding. So on a grand scale, it will continue to fill the role or something along its same lines will continue to fill the role of what it's doing, of this finding out and gathering intelligence on countries, national level, being able to produce and develop now plans for if we ever went to war with somebody, like what would we do, how would we handle it? And if we go to war and how we handle it, being there and being able to identify how things have changed, right? So that I don't think will change uh, for the RJ. On a tactical sense, we are upgrading it constantly. So every air tail goes through a retool every several years, okay? It literally gets torn down to the studs and they put in brand new wiring, brand new capabilities, brand new everything into it. What's nice about the RJs, the RJs are 62, 61, 60, like they're old. <laughs> We're talking in the early 60s of when all these tails went into, into service. The plane isn't, the, the airframe itself isn't what is limiting its strategic capabilities. It's the sensor suites. And those are just boxes or people or training or, you know, or, decryption or whatever the case is like that's just stuff in the back and that, those are things we can change out and move in and, and adapt and and learn and, and grow as we need them as we see developing situations hey i would really you know the america would really love to know x well let's see if we can figure out a way how to collect information on x you know and so they can update it that doesn't require the airframe to change it just requires the back end stuff to change now the rj itself we are the 55th wing fighting 55th uh we are undergoing uh, some updates on the airframe. So prior to this, the RJ is just a specific variant, the Vis Victor and Whiskey variants of the RC-135. We have other variants, OC, WC variants that do different mission sets, okay? Still strategic ISR, but they go and collect a very specific measurements intelligence or this intelligence or that intelligence or treaty verification so the open skies is the plane that we use to go verify nuclear proliferation treaty 
requirements, right? And so it goes and flies through Russia on very, very specific flight plans and doing very, very specific things. And they do the kind of same kind of us to like back mutual treaty verification, right? They, we are starting to upgrade the airframes just because 60, you know, there's been a lot of aviation upgrades in the last, you know, 50, 60 years, right? So we are undergo, undergoing that. But once again, it's the expertise, the back end way of doing things, the knowledge of how to strategically employ these aircraft effectively. That's what makes the aircraft useful and what it's going to be used in a mere peer fight. And so I don't foresee that going away. Maybe will we maybe upgrade the RJ to a triple seven or a G's, you know, G series or whatever. Like, yes, probably at some point that will happen. But right now the aircraft is completely capable. It is also one of the most challenging aircraft to fly because it's so old. When you turn left, it's not a computer telling the wings to turn left. It is literally you with pulleys turning things, right? So challenging aircraft to fly, um, but we can do it. We can employ it effectively, and we're going to do continue to do that, you know, in whatever way the nation requires of us. Yeah, so um, it's my understanding that the RJ is only based out of Offit. Mm -hmm. um, why is that, and why is there not more locations for them? A uh, Good question. I think the biggest reason why is there are only so many tails, right? This is not an F-22 or an F-16 or something where we've got a 1,000 of them, right? We've got, like, 17, you can look it up, you know, kind of stuff. So, like, there's only so many tails, okay? And it helps us to keep our supply lines, logistics. You know, amateurs think in strategy and experts think in, in logistics. Like, it helps us to keep those logistics, those logistic chains smaller, right? So instead of having to pull aircraft from different places, our schoolhouses in one place, operations are in that place. We fly real-world operations, not training, out of Offit, Okay, so we do have one central hub, and that is where every all the and the integration and the support occurs. We also have things called forward operating locations, and so these are the places where we go deploy. Like I said, England, Crete, uh, Japan, like Qatar, these places we go that have in place support. So like entire squadrons of people there to support crews coming out and deploying from that location. So it's a slightly different way of looking at how to structure a wing and structure an aircraft. Fighters, a fighter will take a squadron, go pick it up, and the entire squadron will go deploy. The RJ will send a crew to a place to go deploy there for two, three, four months, and then it comes back. And they've got people in place who are the local experts for strategic ISR employment in that theater, that AOR. They're there to make sure and spin up the new crews, and then the crew comes back. But I think the primary reason for that that central location, once again, opinion, is that it helps shorten the logistical chain of trying to keep these aircraft consistently, continually getting upgraded. Awesome. Okay. I've learned a lot so far on the MC-12 whiskey and the, the, the RJ, but kind of just to go to, to you, your education, your background. So what made you join and uh, why, why did you pick USAFA? I joined because in high school i was part of a jrcc unit and that really spoked with me or at least resonated with me and i i had always gone through life thinking like giving back and and repaying the country service as really being important to me because i'd been given so much um by the country my family just how i live like two school teachers for parents like just service was a big thing for me when i got into jrtc i was like oh wow this is really something i could do i like the order i like the discipline i like giving back feeling like i'm, I'm something bigger than myself so that's why i joined the military i went to the academy and i like i jokingly say because i got on the wrong bus i didn't even know about the academy until my junior year and i didn't 
decide to come here until like my senior year. And to be quite frank, my parents filled out most of the application. I was just kind of along for the ride because I was downright determined to go to University of Florida, go Gators, uh, and they do their ROTC program. Uh, got accepted there. That was that was my baby of doing it. That had always been the dream. Uh, and my parents were like, ah, Academy's kind of cool. Think about it. So they did it. And we just got to the point at the end of senior year, and I said, you know what? Give it a shot. Why not? It's supposed to be a good idea. Go see and do some interesting things. And I loved it. Uh, it's hard probably to see the forest for the trees, as it were, uh, while you're here. But you have cadets. What we have here, you have incredible opportunities. There's not places where you can go do gliding and jump. You can't. I was a bio pre-med guy, so you can't go do un, you know uh, non-masters so undergraduate cadaver dissections. You can't have the access to senior leaders and to go do uh, abroad. So I did a semester abroad. You don't have access to that at just every other place. And not just like one, maybe one of those things, but not all of it. And all of it's available to you. And you don't come out of it with $100,000 of school debt, right? I have plenty of buddies who joined the military in MC-12s and they're like, I am $180,000 in debt right now because I got an aviation degree out of North Dakota State or wherever else. And you're like, I made, I made 60 bucks a day. Not very much, but I made something, <laughs> you know, like I'm not spending thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars. So um, that's why I came. I, I, it was a service. I wasn't really sure where that service was going to be. I was did not plan on being a pilot, didn't even really think about it as a concept until really I had to put in something and it was a good idea. But the service uh, thing is really what drew me. Awesome. And so kind of moving past you, Safa, uh, when people traditionally think of NJEP, the Euronato Joint Jet Pilot Training, uh, they think of fighters and bombers. Is there a reason that you track the MC-12 out of Egypt? So that's an interesting question and a lesson that took a lot for me to learn, but has been driven home many times and I think is important for cadets. But a lot of life is out of your control. And so when we went to MC-12s, my goal going to MC-12s was to drop a B-1. I wanted a bomber because I had, like I said, I was an Army JROTC that I was in in high school. had a lot of buddies go enlist in the infantry and stuff like that. I was like, man, it'd be really cool if I could like help out, give back. Cause I know those people and it'd be really cool if someday I could like say like, Hey, I, I made a difference in those people's lives. Um, okay. Good. It went dark for a second. Uh, so yeah, wanted to do a B1. When we got through Inject, guess how many bombers were dropped out of my class? Zero. Uh, so this is going to be hard for some Inject people to hear. And it's definitely not potentially what will happen now for any Inject uh, people uh, applying there, but we had 16 assignables, so 16 cadets. Uh, we're 1302, 16 assignables. And we had, so 16 people who didn't know what their jobs were going to be, not international guard, not foreign, you know, folks. We dropped four fighters. It's tough. That was during the time. What was not, what was not tough is that prior to our class, they were dropping UAVs out of NJEP. Mm. Oh, wow. So somebody could go from a four-ship check ride to a UAV as their next operational mission. That's tough, right? And that, that is things outside of people's control. And that class I was in had glider IPs, senior glider IPs. They had powered flight people. They had people who were like the top 10 people in the class. So like we had some heavy hitters, right? We had people who had like one of the guys who got assigned, he had, he, oh, this was not a cadet, but he was a Wizzo on a Strike Eagle. I bet he's flown the Strike Eagle and can fly pretty well. Versus me, I have no flight experience. I got there, and I'm like, I can't even spell ILS. Like, I don't know what the heck any of this stuff is. ILS is a type of approach, and you're like, I am so lost, right? So I went there, did the best I could, learned a lot, did well. Never never hooked a check ride or anything like that, but there just wasn't that opportunity. 
And so even though you can go in with the best laid plans of, hey, I, you know, every single person there, I was like the only person that would raise their hand and say, was willing to say, like, nope, I don't want to fight her. I'm here to get drop a bomber kind of stuff. But, like, we had people whose entire dream was to be a fighter pilot, and they didn't get that because of the needs of the Air Force. It's, not, it's a gut punch. It's a gut check of, like, really why you're here. Are you here for you and what you want to do, or are you here because of to serve and do what the Air Force wants you to do and what the Air Force needs you to do? And so when you, you know, why did I drop uh, an MC-12? It was, if I would have known what I know now, it would have been my first choice. There, Like I said, there was no job in the Air Force that had the same satisfaction of saying, like, I made a difference today. And not just today. I made a difference, like, yesterday. And, maybe, and I'm going to go forward. I'm going to make a difference. And, and maybe not in, like, the Air Force, you know, global scheme of things. But I was overhead when 18-year-old John Smith was doing you know, patrols outside of Bagram Air Base and I kept him from stepping on an ID. That's the difference. And so if I'd known, would have picked it. We didn't know at the time. It was, I think, my third choice. And it was just kind of like, I, I want to do something with the ground. I want to do, you know, and they, people, the one person I had come and talk to me that was a flow through that was jaded and bitter and didn't really like, like they didn't really sell it to me, but hey, at least it's something on the ground. So that's why I put it. Yeah. So, um, Another question kind of off of reflecting on your career. Um, is, are there any choices that you made voluntarily um, that you would go back and change? Life's too short to live with regrets. You liked your career so far. I like it. Hey, I, I am very proud. And there's and I, we could just talk stories. We could talk stories for an hour. And I've got tons of stories between the NCTLs and RJs. And I was here to serve and be a, an officer. I love being a pilot. I'm passionate about it. I would, I would do it again. And I think every single one of the other ARCs who are here from my cohort, I can guarantee all of them would send you pilots and say we'd do it again. But I was here to be an officer. And so being with the amazing people in this air thing we call the Air Force, you know, every one of us kind of stepped up to serve. We're not here in the military to be to make it rich or to become famous. We're here to serve, right? And so the level of people you get to work with, the people's lives that you can make a difference in, the relationships you can form when you're doing 30 flights a month for six months, uh, that's what makes me proud. The missions that I've flown, I'm proud of. And I've got some great stories of Winstera, but like those are the kind of things you look back at your career and say, like, this is why I did it. It's because of the relationships, because of the difference I made. I'm not here to make money. Some people, hey, if you're looking to see like I made a million bucks, then it's probably not gonna have the same job satisfaction. But if you want to sit there and make a difference, potentially on the global scale, but I can guarantee you in a, a person's life, if that's what you're here for, if that's what makes you passionate, if you like being part of that kind of team, there is no better place to be. So kind of like kind of reflection on your career. What do you think the best story you have is? How long do you got? You got a little bit of time? However long. Cool. Yeah. Uh, so coolest story and this, I can send you the award nominate or not the nomination, but I can see like the award decoration kind of thing. Uh, we had a situation in uh, 2017 where a crew, my crew thought we were stepping into the start of World War Three. Okay. And so the day it started, um, the cool story. So the day it started, we kind of woke up, started going into work, you know, got there. And if anybody knows the pilot stuff is we have this like start of the crew duty day. So we were not planning on flying, but we started into work and we're like, Hey, we need you to get back into crew rest now. We're like, okay. Like we just started like, but sure. And they're like, we can't tell you anything. We need, we're still gathering information, going back and crew. So go back into crew rest, get the call. And they need just to show up like four or five hours later. That is not a crew rest. That is nothing. That is just time, you know? 
but that is what we need to do. So we show up after five, you know, a couple hours later, I gathered my crew together. This is a crew, white crew, uh, so find out you need. But we'd been flying together for a couple months, crew 26, and I was telling them, like, hey, guys, we need to go back into sleep. Like, And people had drunk three cups of coffee, and they're like, I'm not going back to sleep ever. <laughs> like, you know, woo. I'm like, no, you need to get ready. So try to go back to sleep. Everyone shows back up, and it's in the evening, and we're like, hey, there is stuff going down. Uh, this is when we were about to, uh, President Trump had elected to do a missile strike into Syria onto a chemical plant or some variety or whatever. And there is information we cannot talk about here, but my squadron commander literally said, like, this might be the start of World War Three. Like, we have, there are things here, and I'm not going to talk about it right now, but there's things going on. Like, this is very, very, could go very, very, very bad right now. Compounding that, Weather. Tons of weather all over IUD. Thunderstorms, no one was taking off, everyone was canceling, okay? And so I had the opportunity as being a, this is my second deployment in the RJ. I had done deployment, a number of deployments in the, in the MC-12, so two seven-month deployments in the MC-12, six and a half months, whatever. I'd done a, uh, one deployment in the RJ. This is the second deployment in the RJ, which I'd only had about one week of notice for also, by the way. But anyways, so we're there. They're like, hey, what are you going to do? I, I went to my crew and I said, hey, like, we live in interesting times. There is very real chance that we need to be out there because America needs to know what goes on with this, this strike, because we might, it needs to know. And there might be stuff going towards, this is when I was flying into Iraq, looking at things in Syria. Like there might be stuff going towards Americans and we have to be there to give them warning. Oh, guess what? There's like no defenses. So you're talking about like what defenses you have in the airborne and only your wits about, you only have your wits about you. That was us. And we were getting told there might be people on a one-way trip just to come blow you up. Oh, and by the way, you're going to have to break rules to do it because you don't have crew rest. This is probably going to be an extended mission. So you're going to probably have to overfly your how long you can fly for. And these are Air Force-level rules. And I said, hey, we live in interesting times. We have to make a choice of what's important to you. Rules are very important, but sometimes when you think it's this bad, like, you have to make it happen. So I gave the crew an option. I was like, hey, we can do it. You know, if you want to be a part of this crew, if you don't want to be a part of it, like, step off, please. Like, we are not trying to force anybody to go on a one-way mission, right? But we think this is important enough. Squadron commander's got our back. <laughs> I don't think that'll save me, but, like, this is something important. And if we ha if this has to be our final mission, like, this is the kind of stuff that we have to be ready to pay. And the crew coolest team I've ever been a part of like guess how many people stepped off the crew zero I didn't even get pushback They're like boss if you're saying it's important it's important let's go do it so we took off we we're the only people who did short notice so we got the plane ginned up got off the ground made it through the thunderstorms and we're like I don't even know if we're gonna land back here like the thunderstorms are so bad like we probably shouldn't even have taken off because no one else was but we did it and we got there and we got there <clears throat> funny story we got there do all of this work like put our, our wings on the line because we're like, we're passing up word to everybody. Like, Hey, we're doing this mission. Like it's, we're having to get waivers for rules that we're not, but we have to go. We have to go now if we want to support this thing. We get there and we get told via our little chats strikes off. You're like son of a gun. Like what the heck? We did all of this work, took all of this risk to be told like, Oh, it's not happening on my cruise. Oh, volition. We have a guy, our IO intelligence integration, information integration officer, um, he, on his own volition, starts ta talking to everybody. He's an intel officer, right? We have an intel officer in the back who helps run our, com our compartment and all the intel stuff. 
he finds out and talks to the literal frigate who is launching the mission. So we're getting told, hey, return, you know, try to figure out where you land. He talks to the frigate, and the frigate's like, nope, strikes a go. Like, now. We're like, holy smoke. So we actually are the ones, talk about integrating information, we're the ones that take the information from the Navy frigate and pass it to the Air Operations Center saying, no, no, you guys wrong. It's going, and it's going right now. And they're like, oh, okay. So strike goes and happens. Uh, we end up, and this is the middle of the night, Right, we've been up since normal wake up hours. It's now almost 24 hours, you know, it's like eight, 19, 20 hours later. And we are having to try to do, there's, uh, so this first thing, they have launched emergency launch a tanker from somewhere else. They were the only people there. The tanker comes in, we have to do some very tactical, because we're once again, worried about World War Three. worried about people coming and shooting us down. So we're doing like a no emissions, completely radio silent refueling on them to try to get as much gas as we can in 10 minutes so we can stay as long as we can to watch what happens when the strike goes down because we think everything the anthill will be kicked all hell will break loose so we get that done probably you know somehow in the middle of the night we go up and refuel on a guy who's literally got only like one light on like a little teeny light on the end of the wing and that's like all we can see in the entire thing and pitch dark we go up in a quick turn take as much gas as we can get off tanks strike happens Okay. Now, when we step out the door, remember World War III, the intel we got is, hey, there is a cap, northern Iraq, so where it's supposed to be between that and Turkey and that kind of stuff, there is a cap there. If anything crosses this line in the sand, it dies. No questions asked. That is where we are at. If it crosses the line, it dies. We've got some F-22s or something up there, like, they're going to shoot it down. After the strike happens, what do we know? Something takes off out of Syria, and it heads towards that line. My crew, using our sensor suite, we're not we're a concerned about a are we going to die, but a b like now, what's going towards the F twenty two because it's going to shoot it down. Can't talk about it here, but we made the call that that was that. I don't want to say bogey, but that aerial vehicle going towards going north was not a threat, and we told the F twenty twos and made the call do not shoot it down, which put not only. Not really our lives because it was flying away from us, but it put those guys' lives in danger, the pilots that were up there, and it put whoever was behind them that they were supposed to be defending in danger. And it was all our call after now 25, 26 hours or however long we were going. Middle of the night, all the stress of like, are we all going to land and get like our, our wings removed, get kicked out of the Air Force kind of stuff, or could, you know, die because we're going to hit a thunderstorm or something? Like, we made that call, and I've never been prouder of them because it was the right call. And we were. It was a very, very completely separate of the starting World War Three. National, it would have been a huge incident if that plane had gotten shot down because of top secret reasons. And that's so we did it. Let's we do, did it. Yeah. We were there. Wow. We stopped things. So we come back and land. Everything's fine, and I didn't get my wings taken away. <laughs> Yay! And in fact, we won an award for it. So we were ACCs. We were Air, the Air Force's top crew for 2017 because of it. That's awesome. So it, it was really your role there was to um, monitor a possible response mm -hmm. to the attack on, yeah. Worst situation, we'd have been the first people to die in the start of World War Three, just so we could get word out to everyone saying, like, it, it's all coming, and it's all coming right now. Get ready. That's the worst case. Thankfully, it didn't happen. <laughs> yeah. So kind of on the, that next note, if you want to ask the next question, um, or I'll just ask you. So, like, when we talk about preparing for a large scale conflict, what do you think USAFA can do 
to best prepare its graduates for that likely or possible reality? It's funny you should mention that. Somebody just asked me sort of the same question not that long ago. I think the best thing we can do is to remind and really drive home to cadets that you are not in college. Eye on the ball. Like, you are here for greater things than that. You are not going to go be an accountant. You might think you are. You might be a force support, like, but you are part of something bigger. You're part of something greater. You're part of something that if we got into a war tomorrow, some of you would say, congratulations, you are all have your degree and you are all now second lieutenants in the Air Force because we need bodies to go fight a war. And every single one of you need to be treating every single day and every single lesson here to get ready for that because it could absolutely happen. And 2011 grad, and I was not expecting to be put into situations. I was a lieutenant and I was in charge of a crew of four on the MC-12 that had life and death situations. And it's one thing to say life and death for you. It's quite another to say you are holding another person who you've never met their life in your hand. Yeah, you are meant for you're meant for more. And so, is it some? And you have no idea how much thought and effort of very, some very smart, wise people, the efforts of hundreds, are put in to try to design a place here to help you get there. But ultimately, it doesn't matter how well designed the Air Force Academy is, how well every experience is. It comes down to the buy-in and what y'all want to get out of here. Um, so what can the Air Force, what can the Academy do is somehow through culture or through mentorship or through processes or somehow just really drive home in podcasts like this in interactions with your AOC, interactions of leadership of that you have a calling and there is a point and it is a lot more than just being, I'm a person in college, I'm a baseball player, I'm a dancer, I'm a cyber club a war gaming club like those are great they're wonderful and they're all geared towards making you more because the air force and the nation need you to be more so do it you have the tools you have the capability you're here you're surrounded and, and forced to kind of focus on it be better be ready because tomorrow you could your name could get called and it could be go time and you're gonna have your life in your hands you're gonna have airmen's lives in your hands enlisted and you're gonna have to make the decision for them everyone on that crew had to go by my decision as a captain and their careers my squadron commander careers heck my group commander's career like all of those are probably in that hand of how that that flight went down and that's just one flight and i've got other stories of other decisions and it's probably those ones that aren't the everyday day-to-day of i didn't fly a plane into a mountain and make widows of all the people you know, the families and it make people orphans, right? You're made for more. The nation needs to be, needs you to be that. Yeah. So kind of to wrap up the podcast ending question, it's a, it's a tradition here. Mm -hmm. Um, and I think I know the answer, but we'll still ask it. I bet I got a different one for you. All righty. Uh, what is the best aircraft in the air force's inventory currently and why? The right one. What do I mean by that? So many people come into the air force and are so dang determined to get, X aircraft, it's great. Have dreams, have goals, have aspirations. But every single one of them has their niche and every single one of them has different people. And you can be, if you have the right attitude and you don't go in it just convinced and concerned and, and sure you're going to hate hate it, you're going to fall in love with your aircraft. I love the MC-12, first love, dream to fly, awesome mission, would, would send people there in a heartbeat if I could. Love the RJ, love the leadership, love 
being responsible for people and actually getting to make a difference in 26 people's lives and lead them here and lead them overseas and lead them in the skies of where people want to kill them, you know, kind of situations and where things can go wrong really quickly. Um, love it. I love those two aircraft and I think they're phenomenal and would love to send anybody to them. There's the fighters are great and spec ops are great and AC one thirties and cargo and refuelers. Like we are all a big team. And I know it sounds like all hunky dory, like that's seen Kumbaya find your niche Go be passionate. Go make a difference because every single one of those are required. So just go find one and have a good attitude, and you're gonna be you're gonna love it. You're gonna look back at your career and say like, they're good things. There's bad times. They're the good best of times and the worst of times. But you know when you have the right attitude and you're there for the right reasons, that'll be the right aircraft. Awesome. Well, uh, sir, thanks so much for coming on. Um, once again, this was the Flavor Podcast episode 13. We were privileged to have again Major Hughie with us today. As a reminder, all these episodes are on Spotify and Apple Podcasts with our clips on Instagram Reels and YouTube Shorts with that. We will catch you all in the next one.